You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. There were sightings, and the story spread. People gathered around the lake to search for the monster. Newspapers carried the story around the world. A $50,000 prize was offered to anyone who could kill or capture the beast. And all of this, a half century before Nessie would become the world's most famous lake monster. Right here in America, the story of Champ. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and in this episode, Ben Radford and I will talk with sociologist and author Robert Bartholomew about his new book, The Untold Story of Champ. You may think you know all about Champ, but I learned several interesting bits of information in this episode, and hopefully you will too. Robert takes us on a very thorough journey through the history of Champ sightings on up through modern times and draws some interesting conclusions about what's driving these sightings in Lake Champlain. A quick note, will you be in the Atlanta area on Saturday, March 16th, 2013? If so, please join us at Manuel's Tavern for an Atlanta Skeptic Camp fundraiser. The entertainment will include John Snyder of American Free Thought, Derek Colandano of Skepticality, and myself in a role I was born to play, that of Blake Smith, the mischievous podcaster. If you make it to the fundraiser and listen to the show, be sure and stop by and say hello. I love to meet you folks in real life. Monster Talk. Today we're going to talk to you Robert Bartholomew, who is a sociologist teaching at Botany College in South Auckland, New Zealand. He's author or co-author of many books that would be of interest to Monster Talk listeners covering such topics as mass hysteria, UFOs, extraterrestrial encounters, and pertinent to this interview... The Untold Story of Champ, A Social History of America's Loch Ness Monster. Welcome, Bob. Well, thank you. I'll try to speak loudly as I'm here in New Zealand, thousands of miles away. <laughs> That's right. You're coming through very well. So Champ, the lake monster, I think will be familiar to most of our listeners, but I doubt they've gone as deep with Champ as you have. Can you tell us a little bit about your book and why you wrote it? Sure. Uh, this is one of the great untold stories of American history. During the 1880s and 1890s, 
the Champlain monster or sea serpent, as it was known at the time, was the equivalent of the Loch Ness monster. It was a household name across the United States. Um, the reason I wrote the book is to separate fact from fiction from speculation. Because when you look in the media and at the various claims out there, it's hard to know what to believe. There are all kinds of claims out there. There's a woman who claims to be able to hear chant making sounds under the water. Um, the famous Manzi photo, supposedly the greatest lake monster photo ever taken near St. Albans, Vermont, supposedly. Um, there are some strange things about that photo. And when I look back, the other major book that's been written on Champ was by Joe Zarzinski. He wrote a book called Champ Beyond the Legend back in 1984. And I knew Joe very well. And having read that book as a child, and I did some research on Champ, what I realized was that there was a lot of information that was not in that book, like the entire history of Champ prior to 1950. Virtually all of that information, there's maybe 1,500 words in his book, about uh, 30,000 in my book. I felt it's very important to thoroughly document the early history and sightings of Champ up until about 1950. And then there's a lot more information from 1950 to present. I also put information about that as well. But this is a legitimate part of American history. It needs to be preserved, and people have a right to have the full information about Champ. For example, I had access to a lot of uh, correspondence with Joe Zarzinski, with uh, Dr. Phil Raines at State University of New York at Plattsburgh, who was a monster hunter in the 1960s and 70s looking for Champ. And when I looked at those documents and letters, I realized that Joe Zarzinski had left a lot of information out of his book. And some of that information wasn't exactly complementary toward Champ. So we kind of skewed it one way. Yeah, it's. I, I thought the same thing. I, again, I've I've read uh, I've read your book, The Untold uh, Story of Champ, uh, having done some research on my own, and and just being interested, of course, in lake monsters and Champ specifically. It was uh, it was just really nice to see a much fuller treatment, uh, as you pointed out. I mean, I'd read Joe's book. Um, years and years ago and and you're exactly right i mean he sort of gives very short shrift to anything before really the the 1977 sandra mansky photo published in 81 he sort of, that sort of, that to him is sort of the the main starting point and and i think i think you did a great job in terms of putting the historical context uh of of champ in these claims and so it was it was really cool for me to sort of see somebody taking a scholarly approach to sort of filling in the gaps and i, I think you did that really well Look, thank you very much. To be able to make advancements in sciences and the humanities, you have to stand on the shoulders of giants and what's come before you. And one of those books was your book uh, with Joe Nickel, Lake Monster Mysteries. That was very helpful. Now, in that book, you had different chapters on different lake monsters, and one of those was uh, Champ. And the research that you had done was very helpful and enlightening for me because it helped me to formulate more specific questions as I was delving into this. Um, most books on Champ claim that Champ is some sort of dinosaur, either a zugliodon or a plesiosaur, a form of primitive whale being a zugliodon, a plesiosaur being this kind of stout creature with flippers and a long neck. But as I looked into this, those possibilities to me became less and less realistic because these are mammals and they have to come up for air. And hypothetically, 
you would be seeing a lot more sightings than you are now. And then there's the whole problem of how Champ would be breathing in the wintertime. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, people say, well, maybe Champ's adapted to be uh, uh, an air breather and it can stay underwater for a lot longer. And well, yes, but Lake Champlain has only been there for about ten to 12,000 years. It's a glacial lake. People come up with all sorts of speculation like, um, you know, what if George Washington had an electric blender at Valley Forge? Would we have won the war quicker or something? I mean, it's um, <laughs> all kinds of uh, speculation. And you can speculate about anything. I mean... Champ is part of this world where, like Bigfoot and UFOs or other cryptozoological creatures, um, you have sightings. You seem to have some physical evidence at times, but then nobody has any concrete evidence to take into a laboratory and say, yep, that's the Champlain monster or the Loch Ness monster or that's a Bigfoot. We all know about Bigfoot and how people have those claims and it never seems to uh, pan out. So... And the and the one sense, I mean, there are people out there saying, well, maybe the Lake Champlain monster is like Bigfoot, and it's uh, some type of paranormal creature that has the, you know, goes into another dimension or something. And as a scientist, oh, that's interesting, and you can speculate about just about anything. You know, maybe there's interdimensional creatures out there, but it it to me, it, the much more plausible explanation is that the human mind is very fallible and subject to error. And the human mind does not take in information like a video cassette recorder. It interprets information as it takes it in. All you have to do is watch the Super Bowl. And a couple of calls there could have meant that San Francisco 49ers would have won. It's very You have referees and umpires who are trained observers. They have excellent eyesight. They know the rules. At least now they know the rules, the pre preseason umpires, and I'm not sure if they do the rules, but, um, and yet they continue and they practice all the time. They continue to make mistakes and get it wrong. And even sometimes the video replays, they make mistakes like that, uh, famous game there before they hired the quote unquote real referees back. It's just the nature of the way human beings are and the way we function. I mean, I can remember as a child looking out on Lake Champlain and thinking, gee, maybe I'll swim to the other side. It looked about a, a football field long, but you start swimming out there and it's uh, two or three miles long because mm-hmm. especially on water and when you're looking on oceans and lakes, it's very easy to misidentify things and it's very easy to um, get a, a differing perspective there. And, and it's also important for people to realize that you know I, I keep an open mind and it certainly is possible, I think Ben... You've done research on the Champlain sea serpent, the Champlain monster, and you have said that you know you're open-minded if the evidence is there. Um, sure, sure, I, absolutely. And, and but what people have to realize is not every light in the sky is a UFO. You know, not every rustling in the woods is a Bigfoot. Uh, not every temperature spike or energy spike on some electronic device in a so-called haunted house is proof that there's a ghost there. And not every object spotted on Lake Champlain or Loch Ness is the Loch Ness Monster or Champ. And so we have to kind of keep it in perspective. I would say that 90% of the people that see Champ or the Loch Ness Monster or Bigfoot are honest, sincere people. That few people are hoaxing. And by the same token, uh, Lauren Coleman has suggested that Perhaps 10% of witnesses to something that they can't fully explain, like a Bigfoot or a lake monster, 
10% of those witnesses actually um, uh, actually come forward and the other 90% stay quiet because of ridicule or they just don't care. Um, so you have a phenomena here that uh, you got a human aspect to it as well. Like if you go back into the early uh, European sightings, and there aren't many up until all oh, the, the mid-1800s. Why is that? Well, the Europeans around Lake Champlain at the time were dodging Indians. They were having problems with smallpox, the influenza outbreaks that would occur. I mean, you get influenza today, you go to the doctor, usually, not always, but usually, you'll recover. Back then, I mean, that was extremely dangerous, still dangerous today, but even more so back then. And then you have people that can't get to a nearby town maybe once a month, so the, and they can't pick up the phone and say, yeah, I just saw a sea serpent on Lake Champlain. So you have all these factors that enter into it. And then you have to assume that the nearby town has a newspaper as well, and then you're going to tell somebody who's going to actually report it in the paper. So there are all these factors that enter into it as to why um, you have the sightings when you do have the sightings, because, of course, the main flap, and I know you know this, Ben, in 1873, that was when the first major wave of sightings occurred on Lake Champlain. And that's really an interesting um, motif that starts to develop here because you get flaps. The history of sightings on Lake Champlain, like mm -hmm. on Loch Ness, is the history of sighting flaps. And why is it, and I'd like to know what you think about this as well, why is it that you have dozens and dozens of sightings in 1873, and then say in 1876 there's virtually nothing, and then all of a sudden you get a whole flare-up of sightings again? Yeah, I don't know. That's, that's you know, exactly as you pointed out, you know, with... Uh, with UFOs, of course, they have you know that's that's usually where people think of flaps, but uh, but you know these things go in cycles, and certainly uh, it's fascinating when you look at the the different uh, flaps cycles uh, of of lake monster sightings, whether it's Ogopogo and Lake Okanagan or Champ and Champlain. Um, you know, when I was uh, when I was uh, doing the research there with 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 uh, Joe uh, in in Burlington uh, in Port Henry, New York, as well, you know, they have a big Champ board up there, and it, it lists uh, the sightings. and And what's really interesting is that uh, I, I've forgotten off the top of my head, but I think that about half of the sightings that are listed on that board were were clustered around two or three specific dates. And, and and not specific dates, but certainly a few years. And so you you don't have what you might expect to see, which is, uh, you know, if there if there is a population of these creatures living in the lake, you would expect them to be more or less evenly distributed. I mean, that is, you know, animals don't <laughs> don't only appear in July and December. I mean, they they have to eat and move around and things like that. And so you would expect, obviously, with some variation, but you would expect them more or less. You know, more evenly distributed. Whereas, in fact, what you find, as you just pointed out, is uh, a much more of a clustering flap effect. Um, and in in my, my my best guess, frankly, is that is that you sort of have one sighting that that uh, that spurs other ones, and so you have sort of a, a a social contagion aspect. Yeah, I think definitely you have a media aspect here in terms of reporting. The other question is: Is this some type of phenomena? that is related to the creature if it exists itself in terms of the sightings and, and how, why they would cluster uh, as they do. It's interesting, and that was very insightful when you were talking about the sightings board at uh, Port Henry. When I read that in your book, 
that most of those sightings were clustered around the time when the famous Manzi photo uh, came out. And what's interesting there is in 1970, historian Marjorie Porter wrote an article in Vermont Life magazine, very well known in the region, and she claimed in that article that in 1609, Samuel D. Champlain wrote in his ship's log that he saw a snake-like creature about 20 feet long with a head like a horse. Now, this story has been repeated in books, on TV documentaries, and magazine articles for years and years. Now, checking back and looking for the original log, it's not there. The log is there, but that information, that sighting, is not there. He did not see Champ. What he described seeing was a big fish, and it's a textbook description of a gar pike. But here's what's interesting. Prior to 1970, in that Vermont Life article, there were zero sightings of Champ with a horse-like head, not a single report. After that article, everybody was seeing Champ with a horse-like head. It's a Mm -hmm. form of mass psychology. But then you ask yourself, at the same time, why is it then that the village of Port Henry has that sighting board and still has, because it's common knowledge up there that Samuel D. Champlain saw Gar Pike, that it wasn't Champ. Right. So why is it they still have Samuel D. Champlain as being the first sighting of Champ on that sightings board? And why are newspaper reporters in that region still talking about new sightings of Champ or the annual Champ Day festival that they have every year, when that article comes out, they discuss it in terms of Samuel D. Champlain, of course, was the first European to sight (laughs) the creature on the lake. And and I keep coming up with an answer that's green, and it's trying to promote tourism. It's not Mm -hmm. objective journalism. No, yeah. I, I think I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, that's and, and you know, part of it, I think, is just laziness. Uh, you know, people people don't want to know the truth. It's not it's not interesting or sexy to realize that no Champlain did not actually see Champ. Um, and so, you know, I think I think you're right. Part of it is is tourism, and you might as well flog the story for all it's worth. And then the other part is just people not they don't give a shit. They don't <laughs> they don't care if if it makes a good story, they'll run with it. Doesn't matter what the facts are. The the clustering of the sightings. Have have you looked to see if they correspond to any a time period when there would be increased activity on the lake, or or do they seem to just be all over the place? Oh no! Uh, if you look, and in the book I talk about um, uh, Gary Manjacopra's research, a biologist in Connecticut, and Gary has uh, plotted out all known sightings of Champ up until a certain date, and I think it was um, in the middle of the night, in the middle of January or February, you're least likely to see the Champlain monster because, of course, the lake's frozen over and not a whole heck of a lot of people are going to be out on the lake at that time. Um, And then it's a certain day of the week in the middle of summer. In the evening, you're much more likely or most likely to uh, have a sighting of uh, Champ. Now, earlier, uh, Ben mentioned the word, you know, it's not too sexy to uh, have have a sighting and stuff like that. Well, speaking of sex, I thought I'd slip that in there. Um, Gary. (laughs) That's going to help our ratings. Well, Gary is (laughs) suggesting. You just doubled it to five. (laughs) Uh, Gary suggests that maybe the creature is uh, some type of asexual creature can reproduce on its own. I wouldn't know about that myself. But um, what's what's interesting is I think to have a creature, you don't have one old monster in the lake. What you have is, if it's there, a breeding community 
of between, say, 15 and 35 or 40 creatures in the lake. And then that begs the question, well, how come you don't see the, you know, you have the, 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 um, the smoking gun. Well, here, where's the floating body? But then again, there are sturgeon in the lake that are over 100 years old that can grow up to at least a couple of hundred uh, pounds in terms of weight. And very, very few people ever see a body of a sturgeon as well, or other fish floating on, on lakes. Just the whole thing with uh, people looking for Bigfoot saying, well, how many times have you seen a, a dead bear in the woods? Or how many times have you seen a dead deer in the woods? And, and that's true. I mean, on the other hand, you'd think throughout the entire history of humankind that someone would have gotten the creature and then you'd have the remnants of it there, but um, just doesn't seem to have happened yet. It did sound like from what you said that um, that uh, you, you wouldn't see them in the wintertime, but in, on a nice summer evening when you're sitting out by the lake and it's cool and you're looking out and your vision's obscured because it's partially dark, that's a much better time to see something like this. Um, but let, let's back up just a little bit because I, what you're going to end up doing is making me want to stop talking to you and go research. That's <laughs> which, which is a horrible habit I have. Um, what I'd like to do is let you're uniquely positioned, I think, to set a scene that's rarely talked about, which is you can talk about what it was like in New York and Vermont during the heyday of this this first champ flap. What what was going on? I mean, were there people out on the lake with harpoons or, or was everybody just watching or what, what what happened then? Well, I wasn't there back in 1873, but uh, my relatives were. And I can remember uh, stories being told by my grandmother of her mother and sightings out on uh, Lake Champlain. It was an extraordinary moment in time. It was really remarkable. And then P.T. Barnum came in after they had these initial sightings on the southern end of the lake, and he offered a $50,000 reward for uh, capture of the creature or its carcass, which set off a frenzy of people looking for the creature. And, you know, what, what's interesting is... I think at that point, you have people then scrutinizing the lake, and I think it sets the scene, not to twist the question around here, but to me, it's it's a recipe, there's a certain recipe for lake monster flaps, and you have, as Ben had alluded to, you have this initial sensational case, and there was a case of railroad workers up in Dresden who, who had a spectacular report of this large snake-like creature in the lake, and Historically, it's between 15 and 40 feet long. It fit that bill. Very snake-like. That got reported in the local paper, the Whitehall Times. And I think this prompted more local residents to go out onto the lake and scrutinize their surroundings for evidence of this creature. And they start redefining things that ordinarily they wouldn't think was champ. Maybe it's a large turtle in the lake. And then you get what I call retrospective interpretation. Two months earlier, somebody had seen something, they didn't think too much of it, and then now that becomes a champ. They start redefining those events that happened in the past. And you can um, put this same scheme to Mothman, to Bigfoot, to a variety of monsters, the Jersey Devil. You got that initial sensational case that gets reported in the media, and then people start scrutinizing their environment for evidence of what they assume is there. And then 
what you throw into the mix that a lot of people don't realize is the fallibility of human perception. You know, eyewitness testimony is very fallible and subject to error. We have fried a number of people in the United States, fried them, and then later found out through DNA evidence that they didn't rape or murder someone. And that's really uh, unfortunate. And the other thing that I've noticed is toward the end of these flaps, whether it's UFOs, whether it's Bigfoot, or whether it's Champlain Monster or Loch Ness Monster, you tend to get, well, at the beginning, there's a lot of positive and interesting articles and exciting articles and speculation about what this might be. Toward the end of flaps, you get more hoaxes reported, more misidentifications that are laughed at and made fun of. So these things kind of have their natural cycle and then collapse under their own dead weight as well. Mm-hmm. Well, Bobby, you, you're you're in a unique uh, place. Uh, even though, of course, you weren't around when uh, when P.T. Barnum was <laughs> was offering his his rewards. But uh, you know, Blake Blake and I didn't grow up around Lake Champlain. Um, you know, hearing stories, and so I'm I'm curious because you did. I'm curious. I'm really interested to know. Uh, again, I I kind of wish that I had grown up around a lake. <laughs> that had those stories. I wonder whether I would have just sort of accepted it as a, as a little kid, or if I would have, you know, what I would have thought about it. But can you tell us some of the some of the some of your first recollections about hearing about Champ and, and how it was characterized? Well, I can remember about the the earliest time I was able to lift up uh, binoculars and go toward the lake and hold them up and look. I was you know I was looking for the Champlain monster because I'd grown up with those stories. And, well, there were local people there in Whitehall, which is at the base of the lake, in Dresden, and Putnam, and Ticonderoga. And they would tell these accounts of seeing this large snake-like creature. And that's, the interesting thing is, you do have a wide variance of sightings over time, in terms of uh, what people have described. But overall, there is a certain consistency, and that is a large snake-like creature between 15 and 40 feet long. And they keep saying over and over again, historically, that this thing is very snake-like. Um, so it was very exciting. I mean, my brother and I would go out, and we would interview people who claimed to have seen Champ. And, of course, we were able to talk to people where other people uh, they wouldn't talk to because we grew up with them or went to school with them, and we had dirt on them, so they had to talk. <laughs> so there was blackmail involved. I like it. I like it. But the, the other thing is, it's interesting because Whitehall at the base of Lake Champlain is also known for Bigfoot sightings, and they were literally having Bigfoot sightings almost in our backyard. And those were our friends as well and uh, relatives and people we'd grown up with. So at the base of Lake Champlain, there's a lot of activity. It's also known for UFOs. So it's a real window area, as John Key would say, in terms of UFOs, Bigfoot. And, uh, of course, I wrote a book uh, with some other people called Monsters of the North Woods, which looks at Bigfoot sightings in uh, New York and Vermont, not to change the subject. But it, there's a real... Uh, interesting folklore at the base of Lake Champlain and all around Lake Champlain with Bigfoot, with UFOs, and uh, more recently, uh, ghosts and things like that. So um, that's all I can remember, really. And then I ended up being a journalist, a local reporter in radio. And when they had the conference, I believe it was, what, 1981, the Champ Conference in Shelburne, mm -hmm. Vermont, I couldn't go because I was working on the radio, but I made sure I did uh, some interviews. I think I interviewed Roy Mackle the former biologist at the University of Chicago, 
who said that he believed that Champ was a form of Zugliodon, a very snake-like creature that's a form of primitive will, as opposed to what uh, others have suggested, that is a plesiosaur, which is what's believed by many to be in Loch Ness, plesiosaur having that long neck, but also flippers. I'm aware of virtually no sightings on Lake Champlain of anything with flippers. So I would eliminate, personally, the idea that it is a plesiosaur. And those babies had teeth, if you go back and look. Um, whereas a Zugliodon, um, I think that had teeth as well, but it wasn't so defined as the uh, plesiosaur. I have a hard time believing that it's either a plesiosaur or a Zugliodon, but I'm not saying there isn't a some prehistoric or unidentified creature in the lake. It's certainly a possibility. But, you know, if I were to bet money, to, to paraphrase Arthur C. Clarke, um, if I had $100 to bet, I would take $10 and put it on Champ being real. I'd take $40 and put it on Champ not being real. And I'd take the other $50 and I'd plunk it in my pocket because I don't want to kill the mystery. I think there's something nice about having a mystery there. Now, when I think back, I'm still mad, I suppose, about Santa Claus and about the Easter Bunny. Spoiler and alert, listeners. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. But, <laughs> but you know, it's um, there's something nice about that as well because you you realize the mystery and, and, and how intoxicating that was. But at the same time, it's a good exercise in critical thinking. You know, how is it possible Santa could have gone around and delivered all those presents in one night? Or the Easter Bunny could have hopped around. You know, we used to uh, throw, you know, make little, um, what looked like little bunny tracks in the snow and throw a few eggs around. You know, kids were all excited. You know, for them, the Easter Bunny was real. And for those people that see Champ, and again, the vast majority of them are honest, sincere people, and I don't believe they're hoaxing. To them, Champ is real. It absolutely happened. So, you know, I, I call myself a sympathetic skeptic. I'm very empathetic to those people who have had sightings of something that they can't explain in Lake Champlain. On the other hand, we have to be very careful. Uh, remember, back in uh, 1938, the famous uh, War of the Worlds broadcast, it was estimated by Hadley Cantrell at uh, Princeton University that between, what, 1.2 and 1.7 million Americans were frightened or panicked as a result of that broadcast. People believing that uh, Martians were actually landing on Earth. But what's interesting about that, and a lot of people don't realize is that in the broadcast itself, the broadcast told of Martians spraying this poison gas and firing heat rays. Well, a number of people actually called police, and some of them were choking on what they believed to be the poison gas. Some people said they can actually feel the heat rays behind their locked doors. And there was also a description of these uh, giant machines about 30 feet high, wading through the Jersey Palisades in the distance. Well, people looked in the distance and actually reported to police on the phone, and they've got this written down in police reports that they could see these giant machines wading through the Jersey Palisades. So the human mind is really remarkable in terms of 
misperceiving things. We're very fallible. Whenever somebody escapes, there have, they have sightings everywhere. Right now, there's a, a guy they're looking for in California, a uh, former L.A. police officer. There have been sightings mm-hmm. of him everywhere. And that's just a normal part of the human condition. Yeah, it's a it's a frequent topic here on Monster Talk. And uh, I've actually got a little project I'm working on on the side that I'm going to put in the feed at some point uh, that, that's uh, about human memory and fallibility. Um, but it is a constantly it's, – it's worth repeating because I don't think people realize – uh, just how weird the human mind is and how the reality we take for granted is being constructed in real time. Um, let me ask you a question about uh, Champ and Nessie. I, I noticed that the first sighting of Champ, or the first major sightings of Champ, predate Nessie by about 50 years, yet Nessie now is more famous. Why do you think Nessie's got more popularity? Uh, colonialism, imperialism. Um, and that's because... Between 1873 and about 1933, the Champlain Monster was ranked number one. If it was a a college football team, it would be ahead of uh, Alabama. It was the number one lake monster in the world in terms of uh, newspaper reports all around the world. And then there was the famous surgeon sighting and some literature and sightings developed at Loch Ness in the mid-1930s. And... What you had there was a ready-made audience because there are, what, 53 countries that uh, right now were formerly in the Commonwealth, uh, so part of the British Empire. And when those got reported in the United Kingdom, those newspapers had the transatlantic cable by then and rapid communication internationally. They also got distributed in the empire, in their newspapers. So you have this ready-made audience, whereas the Champlain monster remained more of a phenomena that was confined to newspapers in the United States. We're all familiar with, with some of the main parts of the evidence, including, of course, the Mansi photo. And we can talk more about that later. Uh, various sightings, this and that. But there's a really interesting and in what many people consider to be some of the best uh, evidence, which is echolocation and sounds, particularly by a woman named Elizabeth von Muggenthaler. Um, and again, I wrote a little bit about that in, in my chapter in Lake Monster Mysteries, but you have a pretty extensive section in there. Um, and again, it's, it's, it's a topic that, that I, I often hear you sort of brought up as like, well, there's this echolocation evidence, blah, blah, blah. Um, but, uh, I've, I've, I haven't really seen it, uh, really well refuted, certainly not, not ex- as extensively as you can. So can you, can you give us a little primer on that and, and some, some of the, uh, you know, what, what your take is on that evidence? Well, first of all, I'd like to thank you because you really helped me when I was uh, looking at your book, Lake Monster Mysteries, and I saw that you were involved with that uh, Discovery Channel documentary, I believe it was back in 2003, and they send divers, you were saying, down when they had echolocation readings, but they weren't seeing anything. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Basically, uh, yeah, I I don't know that I was on that 
particular shoot, but I, I know, I mean, I saw the, saw the footage and, and I was on, on one of the shoots there and yeah, basically what had happened was, uh, and I don't want to jump, uh, jump on your story. Basically the bit that I remember is that, is that, uh, she had seen, she and this other team had, had gotten some, what she considered to be anomalous signatures, uh, and they immediately dispatched divers, uh, like within, within seconds, uh, uh to go down and, and try to find the source of that. And they found nothing at all. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose, it kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. That's right. And now when I contacted Elizabeth von Muggenthaler, I said, look, I'm doing a book on the Champlain monster. Can you give me your research? I'd like to know about your research and about your background. I mean, what's, what's your background? And she didn't tell me about her credentials. And she sent me uh, an abstract of a paper that uh, she had presented at a scientific conference. I believe it was the Acoustical uh, Society of America had met. And so I look at what she sent me, and there's just an abstract, and that's it. There's nothing, Mm -hmm. no more detail. So I contact the person who organized the conference, and she said, Oh, I remember Elizabeth von Muggenthaler. She never showed up. Her paper was withdrawn. So I looked into her background, and given the fact that she didn't tell me what she had, all I've been able to find out is that she has a bachelor in psychology. And right after she got the bachelor in psychology, she founded that uh, Fauna Communications Institute. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, anybody found their own institute. I can found the Ben Radford Institute for um, Paranormal Anomalies. Um, it's uh, so my question is why did the discovery channel use her and not one of the many real qualified experts on marine biosonar and uh, i keep coming up with the answer that documentaries are a business and they're aimed at getting the biggest audience possible and they need to make money and fund themselves now i am a sociologist i am not an expert on biosonar or echolocation and most people aren't and that's why Elizabeth von Muggenthaler has been given a free pass by most newspaper um, 
reporters and magazine reporters because they don't know and, and they got a busy schedule. They got to go on to the next story. They can't call somebody at the Smithsonian and ask him what they think of this and send him the information and blah, blah, blah. So they essentially get a free pass. But so what I did as a journalist who's not an expert on biosonar echolocation, I contacted several of the world's top experts on marine biosonar. And I said, look, here's her website. Here's the information that I've gathered. What do you think? Not one of them take her research seriously. I mean, hmm. not at all. I mean, they were scathing and what they were claiming. They said the noise could have been one of many things. Uh, and she's going for the more exotic. Uh, what's the old saying? When you hear the sound of hoofbeats in the night, think first horses, not zebras. And right. she hears something there. She's thinking zebras as opposed to horses. The same thing when people look up into the sky and see a light in the sky they can't identify. It's not necessarily an extraterrestrial spaceship. Um, so it's very frustrating, and that's one of the reasons why, when I was doing research for this, I, at times, you know, it's it's kind of like going out with my brother Paul with his Bigfoot research in upstate New York, and in the middle of the night, at two in the morning, and you see this big footprint plopped in the side of the road in the middle of nowhere, you think, gee, for a second, that maybe Bigfoot is real, and then you kind of get a hold of yourself. Well, with this here, when I saw this research by Elizabeth von Mugenthaler, when I was first doing research for the book, I said to myself, you know what, maybe there really is this large mammal echolocating in the lake. Uh, but the more I looked into it, and I want to believe, the less credible it became, just like Dennis J. Hall. Um, mm -hmm. He was the face of Champ in the early 1990s, up until about 2007. He had that website, Champ Quest. He was on just about every TV documentary I can recall from that period, uh, newspaper articles. He was essentially the public face of Champ. And when I started digging into his background, he claims to have had 23 individual sightings, several involving videotape with Champ. Um, as a child, he claims to have cradled a baby Champ in his arms. I kid you not. And you had done some <laughs> research on that as well, and you helped me out get some more information for my book on that because it ended up, I think, in was it the Virgins, Vermont uh, Science Lab at a high school and then it ended up supposedly being thrown out. I mean, just imagine somebody has this a baby champ in a formaldehyde jar or something in a, and it's, it's supposedly it was given to some scientists at a university and ended up in this high school lab and ended up being thrown out. Wouldn't you think you'd take a picture? Where is the photograph? <laughs> And the other thing is, I mean, Paul claimed that Champ has nearly become extinct because the Indians would kill and eat the creatures um, in earlier times. I'm thinking, well, how did he come up with that one? And he reminds me of that housewife in New Mexico who a few years ago had burned a tortilla on her skillet and thought she saw the face of Jesus. Uh, I have no doubt when he hops in the bathtub, um, he probably sees Champ there as well, or when he's shaving in his sink in the morning. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think he's a bad guy or an evil guy or Elizabeth von Muggenthaler is a bad person. I just think they've gotten carried away. They've gotten overzealous. 
how else do you explain 23 signings? I mean, and then people see and hear what they want to hear. It's almost like the Elizabeth von Muggenthaler research is almost like the backmasking and this electronic voice phenomena and playing records backwards and tape recordings and things like that. People hear and make meaning. We're meaning-oriented creatures. We we try to make sense of the world, and we want to believe. I want to believe. I want to believe that when I walk to the store later today, and if a car veers toward me and hits me and kills me, that I'm gonna. There's a heaven there, and there's ghosts and stuff. But you know, these are emotional, charged debates, and I'm gonna tell you something that I think some people might think crazy or a bit far fetched, but I think it comes back to religion to a certain extent when you look at champ sightings because i think that champ just well look at ghosts it's not that somebody saw a ghost it's that they may have seen proof of life after death so mm-hmm. that when you you're actually going to live again so there's a great emotional appeal there and people say yeah but what about ufo's or the loch ness monster or, or champ well, with UFOs, if they were our extraterrestrial and were to transfer their technology, perhaps their technology could make us to be immortal. Okay, so now what's the secret underlying theme here with things like Loch Ness Monster and Lake Champlain Monster? I see the lore of the Champlain Monster and, and cryptozoological creatures like the Loch Ness Monster as anti-scientific symbols in a secular age. Um, Science says, for example, the Champlain monster doesn't exist, but John Doe saw it. With each new sighting report, it causes some people to question the present sophistication of science. And if science is wrong about ghosts or Bigfoot or the Champlain monster, maybe they got religion wrong as well. And to me, I think that's the lore of these groups today, all these paranormal groups across the United States, there's over like 4,000 groups in the United States alone being driven by these uh, TV shows. Uh, I don't think it can sustain itself. It reminds me of the spiritualist movement of the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, you've got a waxing and waning, and right now it's really waxing. And I think what drives that is a similar phenomena whereby you know somebody goes into a haunted house, supposedly haunted, and they've got some machine that can detect a temperature rise of two degrees in the left-hand corner of the room, and then there's some electromagnetic activity over there. Well, maybe there's a fan nearby or something. I mean, it doesn't necessarily prove the existence of ghosts, or, but it's proving the existence of life after death. And all this stuff, the making mysteries out of mohills, so to speak, um, to me... That is undermining, they're trying to undermine science. They're trying to say, well, science can't explain this. If they can't explain this, maybe there is a God, and maybe they've got it wrong. Now, all of science doesn't say that Champlain Monster doesn't exist, but mainstream science would say you require, as myself, I do, a fossil, body, bones, DNA evidence. Nothing less will suffice because we have photographs that really are not conclusive proof. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it, it's it's funny you you mentioned that. I was I was just sort of thinking back as you were talking to in in my chupacabra research. Uh, I, mean, I there's one of the particular ones that was found in Blanco, Texas, that ended up in a creationist museum. Uh, because, uh, to, to, to this one person, uh, he believed that the existence of Chupacabra, if it, if it was real, it somehow disproved, uh, evolution. And exactly as you're saying with, with Champ, for some people, if Champ is real, it somehow, you know, disproves, uh, important swaths of science. And it's, it's fascinating to sort of, to see those connections there. There's a researcher at Harvard University. She is a biologist, and she wrote a recent article about mermaids, and there was a similar debate going on about mermaids. I believe it was, uh, uh, and certain uh, other uh, quasi-creatures in the late 1800s and early 1900s that was being used uh, at that time by pro-creationist groups. Yeah, I've I've always thought that um, mermaids in particular, any of this, chimera-like, um, oh, sorry. any of those chimera-like creatures would be great. I mean, if you're going to look for something to falsify evolution, having something that's half mammal and half fish, that's would be fantastic. Of course, I don't think there's any likelihood those things are going to turn up. But uh, your point on um, this being a sort of a secular alternative to religion, um, that's something that Susan Clancy talks about quite a bit in her uh, – abduction book, uh, I think it's called Abducted. We, I want to get her on if she'll come on and be a guest. Um, but uh, so you, this book, it seems to be combining a lot of history, but your background is sociology. So in your experience, how does sociology m- mesh with your skepticism? Well, to me, this is about as much the hunters as the hunted. And as I say in the book, research into the history of Champ tells us more about us than it does about Champ, if Champ is there. Because you get all this infighting going on, reported before, and it was really uh, surprising. And you're getting this today as well. It reminds me of the Democrats and the Republicans in the United States. Um, you have these groups and all the infighting going on between these groups. And I ask myself, why is it? That's all these groups of Bigfoot researchers and lake monster researchers seem to be in a perpetual state of squabbling. And I think it's because a couple of reasons. One, everybody wants to be the first. They want to be the first one to get credit for proving the existence of Bigfoot or the Champlain monster. The other one is more nuanced. You get a lot of backyard researchers involved in paranormal groups and Bigfoot groups, lake monster hunting and things like this. And I think that's fine. There's nothing wrong with somebody who is not a scientist looking for these creatures and going out and and hunting and stuff like this. However, they are generally not steeped in the experience of having submitted articles for scientific journals. I've published over 60 articles in peer-reviewed journals And anybody who's done that knows you're going to get criticized. And you have to take the criticism constructively and then rework the material and resubmit it. What's the uh, T-shirt they used to have when I was a kid? Doesn't play well with others. Well, that's what's happening here with a lot of these uh, cryptozoology groups. 
somebody criticizes someone constructively, and the next thing you know, there's a feud going on, and this group isn't talking to that group, and that person's a son of a gun, and it is just in, in the history of the UFO groups, the Bigfoot groups, uh, Lake Monster groups, Loch Ness is notorious for it as well. I mean, it is just rife. I have talked to so many people who have said to me with paranormal groups today, oh, I, I actually formed my own group because I couldn't stand John Doe and Mary Jones or whoever they were because they were doing this and, and we disagreed about that. And the nature of science, and, and that's what tipped me off with the Elizabeth von Muggenthaler research that there might be um, a fly in the ointment there. And that was when I mentioned Ben Radford's name to Elizabeth von Muggenthaler, she went ballistic. She was very unhappy and said, uh, oh, he's not a real scientist and uh, you know, he's just trying to get publicity and this and that. And I, I thought to myself, well, that's not how a scientist would have handled that question. I mean, she was very blunt. And, and that's when I said, okay, I need to do more research here. What's her background? What, what, what degrees does she have and how much uh, research experience does she have? And it turns out not much. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, it was uh, it was funny because I had uh, I think I communicated with her once m many years ago, several years ago, and I hadn't heard anything more about her since. And I'm sure that she had either read or someone had had showed her uh, the the section in in my Lake Monster book. Um, but I I had, I had no idea that I was uh, I was on her shit. So, <laughs> so there you go. But. You know, in your book, you have some really interesting sort of uh, very new revelations. Uh, a lot of times in, in Bigfoot books, in, in monster books, especially, you know, Bermuda Triangle, UFO books, there's nothing new. It's it's just rehash. It's the same old stuff. They're just, you know, it's something that someone copied off a website. But with your with your book, The Untold Story of Champ, you actually have some really interesting new <laughs> new revelations. And so I, I don't want to give away the, the book because you have, you know, there, there's lots of stuff there and people should check it out. But uh, can you can you give us a couple little little tidbits of, uh, of some some really interesting, uh, important uh, revelations that you have there? Sure. And, and Ben, somebody actually cutting and pasting from a website, um, would that actually happen? I mean, that's probably happening five times every second, you know, somewhere in the world. <laughs> when I was, um, just as a quick aside, when I was doing some research for, uh, on my other interest, which is mass hysteria, mass psychogenic illness, uh, a few years ago when I was in Australia, I was doing a Google search and I got this newspaper in India, which had a remarkable series of mass hysteria outbreaks I was studying and was very interested in. So I got a hold of the newspaper article and was reading it. And I was thinking to myself, wow, that's exactly what I'm doing. And then I realized they're quoting from me as <laughs> they had cut and pasted from a skeptical <laughs> article. And it was a paper in India. So, um, yeah, things like that happen. There are a lot of revelations in the book. Uh, for starters, that uh, the two... Uh, well-known monster hunters, uh, Dr. Phil Raines, who looked for Champ in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and then Joe Zarzinski, the other big hunter, uh, basically didn't like each other a lot. And they had these strong disagreements behind the scenes, and nobody ever knew about it. So I got a hold of a lot of their correspondence, which is very uh, enlightening. But to me, it's really surprising how 
the historical reports of CHAMP, most of them have never been reported before in book form since the 1870s, 80s, 90s, and early uh, 1900s. So I saw it as my duty to include those reports in as much detail as possible. Of course, everything's fully referenced. It's very important to have a full record of this stuff, and then people can decide for themselves. The other one, though, is the famous Sandra Manzi photograph. Now, that's often said to be the best lake monster photo ever taken. I believe it was back in 1994, the famous surgeon's photo at Loch Ness, which was taken in the early 30s. That was discredited, and it's widely believed now that that was a hoax. You still get some people straggling saying no, but there's somebody directly involved with that who claims that it was a hoax. So it likely was. So by default now, the Champlain monster, the famous Sandra Manzi photo uh, taken in the summer of 1977 is considered to be the best lake monster photo ever taken and probably in all of cryptozoology as well. Um, that photograph, is really unusual in the sense that I was surprised. When I saw it, you look at it and you think, wow, it looks like this large snake-like creature. And historically, it's this creature people are seeing 15 to 40 feet long, large and snake-like. So maybe it really is proof of the existence of Champ. But then Sandra Manzi said she threw away the negative. And you have to think about this. You take a picture of what you believe to be a living dinosaur and you throw away the negative, which is the key part that you can use to verify the photo because you can blow it up and get much greater detail. And then Mr. Manzi later told a scientist in Vermont, and I have the correspondence there, the actual letter that he wrote. He said, you know, Mr. Manzi said that uh, they didn't throw away the negative, that they either burned or buried it in their backyard. Now, I'm not making that up. I've known people, they interpreted it as some type of negative creature, maybe some type of evil creature. So, okay, fair enough. Let's go on that hypothesis that it was so disturbing, they decided to burn or bury the negative in the backyard. Well, then there's another problem, and that is when you interviewed Sandra Manzi back in 2002, I was listening to your tape just the other day, and thank you for sending it to me. Um, she said that she put the photo where, Ben? Well, she said she put it, uh, she had told a couple different stories, but she, she told me that she put the photo in a, in a photo album behind some other photos. That's right. And she told a number of journalists who had interviewed her face-to-face, -face, this was in the early 1980s, that she took the photo and she pinned it to her bulletin board in her kitchen and it remained there for a couple of years. Now there's a big difference between, it's not a one-off interview and it's not like some, somebody misquoted her. These are direct quotations. So that's, and you know, on the one hand, I want to give her a pass there and say, well, maybe she just, memories fade and people can get things confused. But there's, there are about a dozen things that if you take them in their totality, it just doesn't make sense. And there's much more to the story than people realize. And then, of course, you've got the, um, 
Sandra Manzi claimed the New York Times offered her money to publish the photo. And the Times said that that's not true. Um, the, the other thing that's interesting is the attempt to cash in. Now, if I took a picture today of the Champlain monster, I might think about cashing in on it. I, I have to admit that. I'd like to think not, but maybe. I mean, we're all human. That's possible. But because of the human twists and turns here, what's happened to the photograph, it's, it's kind of like a pretzel. Um, most of the listeners probably don't know, whenever the Manzi photo is published and they, they release it for money, a small army of people have their fingers in the pie, including lawyers. Sandra Manzi's workmate, a man named Roy Kapler, took Manzi to court over the photo in the 1980s because she had signed a piece of paper at work saying that he was going to be her business manager to promote the photo. So now whenever the photo was published, and they settled out of court, whenever the photo was published, Kapler gets a cut. Kapler's lawyer gets a cut. Manzi gets a cut. Manzi's lawyer gets a cut. Manzi's ex-husband's estate, because he's now dead, Anthony Manzi, gets a cut. In the book, I like to call it uh, a feeding, uh, feeding frenzy. Champ has a 401k plan. Yeah, there's something there that's just not quite right that goes to the human aspect of this. And the fact that you know she got a business agent and it just would have been a lot better for Sandra Manzi to have said, look, I took this photograph. Here it is. I'm, I'm not trying to get any money for it. Um, and I think that would have enhanced her credibility a lot more. And it would be my recommendation that Sandra Manzi not go into the PR business. And I assume you cover this in detail in the book. But just between, uh, between the time uh, Manzi took the photo and the time that she's starting to look for a business manager, how much of a gap is there? Well, in theory, that, that we're aware of, it's two years, because she took it in uh, 77. Okay, so that part of the story, the, the gap is still there. The gap is still there. And look, if I take a photo of what I think is a prehistoric creature in the lake, then, number one, I'm not going to throw away the negative. Number two, I'm going to contact somebody sooner than two and a half years. I have a gut feeling that um, Sandra Manzi did not hoax the photo. I think it's authentic what she took. But I also think because, and now Ben, correct me if I'm wrong, but when you interviewed Sandra Manzi, um, you were trying to get other pictures on that same role. She only took one photo of the creature that we know of or of what's purported to be the creature. But it would have been helpful if she had some pictures that had come before or after that picture on the roll. And then you would ask her about that and she was looking into it. And I'm assuming she couldn't find them. Yeah, I, I had asked her and I said, look, you know, uh, do you have any other photos? She said, no, I just took this one. And contrary to popular belief, this was not the last, it wasn't the last photo on the roll. She said there there were others. She just, she, it's not that she just didn't take anymore for, for whatever reason, she kind of froze or whatever. So yeah, I said, you know, I said, if you can find other photographs, you know, just before, just after this, it would be very helpful. And exactly as you said, she, uh, from what I recall, she said she would look for it. And, of course, I never heard any more about it. The other aspect, of course, is the location. And I find it very 
hard to accept that she can't find that location, given that um, you know she grew up in Vermont and her relatives had a camp in the St. Albans area, and she had the opportunity to look for the photo uh, back in the early 80s and came up to specifically look for the photo and didn't. So I believe that in the year 2013, we may have more definitive information on the Sandra Manzi photo. Uh, ben Radford and myself are working on that behind the scenes, and we're hoping to have more definitive information later this year in hopes of trying to shed more light on that Sandra Manzi photo. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, I, I just wanted to say it's uh, again, I, I've, I've read the book um, and it's a, it's a to my mind, it really is the definitive book on champ. Um, you know, there are lots of books, uh, you know, Zarzinski's book is a good one for for what it is. Uh, but if if someone wants to, to read a really good, again, essentially definitive book on champ, um, yours is the way to go. And I, uh, I, I really uh, I can tell how much work went into it. And, and again, no. For somebody who is not only knows a lot about the subject, but is really intensely interested and plays a role in it, um, I think you did a great job. It sounds like it. It sounds like a fantastic book. I, I, I haven't read it myself, but it's definitely going to be on my read list now. Um, I have a question for you, Bob, that we like to ask all of our guests. And I know you probably don't aren't prepared for this, but here goes. What's your favorite monster? My favorite monster? Well... It would be a TV series. It would be Kolshak, the Night Stalker. Oh, that's a great show. That's one of my favorite shows. There's a book on the history of Kolshak and maybe three movies. And that movie, uh, the movies and the TV series, which was in the early 70s, Darren McGavin, that series was the forerunner for the X-Files. That's what was used by Chris Carter for the X-Files. That's what he based it on. And toward the end of the X-Files, they actually used Darren McGavin he was quite ill at the time, uh, for a cameo appearance on the X-Files. I had read, I, I followed the, both shows, and I, I'd read that they were going to try to do an actual Kolchak crossover, which I really, really wanted so much. Uh, so when he got to be on there and it was different, I was a little disappointed, but I was still glad to see him. Yeah, I, uh, I think Kolchak is great because there's that... Um, it, it it just makes it elusive. You got you got to have a sense of humor, and there's a sense of humor in there. Yet it's serious at the same time, and you got to be able to laugh at yourself. And look, I don't have all the answers. Uh, it to me, it's fun, it's interesting, it's exciting, and it's relevant in a legitimate part of our history. Whether it's the history of the chupacabra, whether it's the history of the Champlain monster or the Loch Ness monster or Bigfoot, and whether these creatures are real or not. They are legitimate parts of our history, and they're very important for what they tell us, not so much about the creatures, assuming they don't exist, for what they tell us about ourselves. And I think that the ultimate answer to the mystery of what's in Lake Champlain will not be solved by scanning the lake and looking for evidence of a prehistoric or undiscovered creature. It'll be solved by looking upward to the human mind and what deep-seated psychological needs are being fulfilled. The whole notion about Champ, the Loch Ness Monster, Bigfoot, UFOs, ghosts as anti-scientific symbols in a secular age undermining mainstream science. I think that is 
the key relevance here, that's what it tells us from a sociological point of view. That's the key nugget to take from this. That's a that's a great summary. I love that. <laughs> Thanks so much for being with us today. I really appreciate it. You had one more minute. I've pulled out an excerpt from the book that kind of summarizes everything. Um, sure. Okay. Now, to set this up, there is a biologist at Harvard, uh, Harvard University, E.O. Wilson, and he has suggested that seeing monsters, and I don't know if you're familiar with this theory or not, but it's part of our evolutionary DNA, because snakes and creepy crawlies, they give us the heebie-jeebies, and they make us nervous, and they should, because they could kill us, especially in the past. So maybe there's some kind of biological inclination here. Not that you're hallucinating creatures, but to be hypervigilant, and then maybe you misperceive something. So my excerpt in the book uh, goes like this. The Champlain monster is many things to many people. To some biologists, it is part of our evolutionary heritage that pre-programs us to see mythical beasts. To environmentalists, it is a green symbol. To sports lovers, it's a baseball mascot. Local politicians and shopkeepers view it as a symbol of economic revival. For parents, it is a cautionary tale and a way to scare children. Don't go down to the lake alone or Champ will get you. For children, it is a comforting stuffed toy, a friendly monster, and a dead set certainty. For believers, it is an anti-scientific symbol, epitomizing the view that science does not have all the answers. Whereas for skeptics, depending on their temperament, it is either a humorous legend or an annoying myth. For everyone, Champ is a poster child of what may lie undiscovered because it is scientifically plausible. Champ may be a new or long-thought extinct creature. Someday, sophisticated technology will finally settle the debate. And even if the answer is nay, the legend will endure. Because Champ is a legitimate part of our regional identity and national history. Monster Talk. I'm Blake Smith, and you just listened to Ben Radford and myself interview author Robert Bartholomew about his new book on Champ. A link to the book will be in the show notes at monstertalk.org. We've got more transcripts uploaded this week thanks to contributions from listeners. Our transcript project turns Monster Talk into a Google searchable content, which can also be used to update Wikipedia. If you'd like to contribute, there are links at monstertalk.org, as well as our contact information, links to our active and fun Facebook group, Twitter accounts, and more. Special thanks to Shane Brady and Robert Smith for their kind donations. This show is created with the helpful support of Skeptic Magazine. The views on this show are not necessarily the views of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Oh, there's no stinger this week after the credits.
for more skepticism? Want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skeptic, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit Skeptic.com today. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.